If you hunt enough, you learn the truth. What you seek speaks a language and knows it well. That's why every Primo's call for everything you hunt is made the right way. We sweat every detail so you get more out of every hunt and nothing leaves our hand until we know it'll work in yours. Because we don't just make the world's best calls, we speak the language. Primo's. The only shooting stick with one-handed trigger pull adjustments has a new way to keep you at the top of your game. The Trigger Stick Apex. Built for sturdy support that adapts to unforgiving terrain with easy adjustments to make your big shots. With our Durasteady three-piece carbon leg design and interchangeable rock-solid clamp, nothing tops the Apex. The Trigger Stick Apex, only from Primo's. If you hunt enough, you learn the truth. What you seek speaks a language and knows it well. That's why every Primo's call for everything you hunt is made the right way. We sweat every detail so you get more out of every hunt. And nothing leaves our hand until we know it'll work in yours. Because we don't just make the world's best calls, we speak the language. Primo's. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 2, Episode 64, Chris Wood of Trout Unlimited. He is currently the CEO and President. We met up on Halloween morning at the Arlington County Regional Library near his office to discuss all things Trout Unlimited. If you're not a member of TU, you might want to join after hearing this. You don't just have to be a trout angler to be a member. They are the nation's or the world's largest cold water conservation organization. They're doing a lot of work, and they need every dollar we can give them. Hope you enjoy this one. This is going to be uh, just a little interview in a little room in the library. It just happened to be the nonprofit room, which we thought was was kind of cool. So, all right, here's Chris Wood. All right, well, uh, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. I've got, I've got my shirt on. I had it. I biked in with an orange shirt today. All right. People probably just thought you were being like safety orange. I know, but this is pumpkin orange. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, my name's Chris Wood. I'm the president and CEO of Trout Unlimited. All right. And uh, so I want to talk about your background before we get into all of what TU does. And I guess we call it TU for short, versus Trout Unlimited. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's common. All right. Uh, so let's find all about you. Where did you grow up? Yeah, so um, I am sixth or seventh generation uh, New Jersey. In fact, my father moved the family out of Newark, New Jersey, and my grandfather uh, grew up on a farm on what is now the Newark Airport. Wow. Um, so we've been, we're actually something called uh, SAR, Sons of the American Revolution. My family predates the forming of the country. But we grew up, and that's on my dad's side, uh, we're, we're very Irish for the other three grandparents, but uh, we grew up in New Jersey, and in, in truth, other than visiting family in Ireland, I never left New Jersey 
until I went to college in Vermont. And you're like, the tomatoes up here suck. <laughs> exactly, yeah, we, to the, and the corn. But it was, uh, you know, I had a, you know, a, a, a typical, you know, suburban childhood, played a ton of sports. I have three brothers. We're all very athletic, all played three sports through high school. And, and then I went to Vermont, and, you know, I was sort of always into fishing, but in Vermont I really got into it. In fact, I used to have a buddy named Rick Brown, and a couple of times we did, we fished all day, meaning we fished all day. We went out at like, you know, 6 p.m. and fished until 6 p.m. the next day, just to demonstrate we could do it. And I got... The good old days when we could do that. Yeah, exactly, when you had the energy and the stamina. But I got into fly fishing um, while I was in Vermont. Uh, My parents had bought me an Orvis Green Mountain series rod. I don't know if you remember that. It was one of their starter kit rods. And, uh, you know, came with a reel and a a rod. I still have that rod, by the way. And my youngest son, Henry Trace, caught his first fish on a fly rod with that rod. But um, I had a little brother up there. I was in the Big Brother, Little Brother program. Mm -hmm. And um, he was a special needs kid. And his uh, therapist and his parents thought that fishing, but fly fishing in particular, would be therapeutic for him. And so that's when I, I picked up the fly rod and actually started using it. It was a terrible idea as a form of therapy because for you know those of you who are new to fly fishing, you will soon discover that it's not relaxing when you begin. The the line gets wrapped around your ankles, and uh, you know the knots are invariable. These Gordian knots that are so difficult to get out. But um, I stuck with it, and uh, that's where I, I basically discovered my passion for fly fishing. All right, and. Yeah. Then- after school, what did you study in Vermont? I was uh, I was an American. I'm sorry, political science major and American literature minor. Okay. Yeah, it's awesome, awesome experience. I desperately wanted to go to Georgetown. My dad went to Georgetown, played basketball there. Uh, my three brothers all went to Georgetown. I had better grades than all of them. I did better on the SATs than all of them, and I didn't get into Georgetown. And I'm not bitter about that, Rob, at all. I'm not. It was one of the good things. I still love you could, Georgetown. You could have gone to school right on the Shadowrun. That's right, exactly. I would have discovered the Shadowrun a lot earlier. Yeah. But no, I uh, I loved going to Middlebury. It was an awesome school and uh, really fell in love with the outdoors. And After I graduated, I didn't have a lot going on, so I, I, I packed my Mercury Lynx with a box of uh, Dinty Moore beef stew and my uh, shepherd collie mutt named Gus, and he and I traveled cross-country. Wow. And because you know, I'd really never been out of New, out of the eastern the yeah. northeast corridor, and uh, you know that's when I discovered you know you know this, this incredible legacy that we have as a nation of public lands that you know I, I couldn't get over the fact that I could pull into a campground on a, a national forest that you know you and I collect and all everyone else listening collectively own as a birthright, and I could camp for free, and so that was my routine. I made my way very slowly across the country. I got to San Francisco, met up with a friend out there, came back. My last night camping was in the Black Hills, uh, and then I drove uh, 36 hours straight back to D.C. uh, because I was anxious to meet with my girlfriend, and then it became like a contest of can I actually stay awake for 36 straight hours? I don't recommend it. It was not a good idea. Did the dog do any driving? The dog didn't do any driving, but he did some whining. We had to get out a couple times. How would you handle the sodium from just Dinty Moore? Uh, you know, uh, we 3, were... 3,000 milligrams per can. When you're younger, you can handle that stuff, you know? I, I, I must admit, if I see a can of Dinty Moore beef stew now in the supermarket, I actually get physically sick. 
yeah. when was this? 80s, 90s? Yeah, this would have been like 89 or so. And then I came back and I took a job um, in an ice cream factory and coached high school football um, in my alma mater at St. Peter's Prep in Jersey City. And in fact, we, uh, we won the state cha- championship that year, uh, which began a long uh, run of you know, just outstanding football teams uh, for St. Peter's in New Jersey. They're one of the best in the state every year now. Um, and, and I'll tell you how I got into conservation. I was, as I mentioned, I was, you know, uh, coaching and, and working in this ice cream factory. And my buddy, uh, Mick Kelly was bartending in Homer, Alaska at that place called Land's End, if you've ever been to Homer. And he was living on the Homer spit, which is a strip of beach there. A lot of people do that when they work there in the summer. So we, we, we went out a few nights and stayed out too late one night and uh, he made the mistake of saying, hey, if you want to borrow my car, um, you can drive down to the Kenai Peninsula and, and fish for salmon. And so I'd never, I'd never fished for salmon before. I didn't, really, I didn't know anything about salmon, but I had my seven weight, and I had some uh, you know, brand-new Ranger rubber waders. You know, this is back when we still had rubber one-piece waders. I drove down to the uh, Kenai Peninsula uh, to the Anchor River, uh, and I camped where the anchor flows into the salt. And, uh, you know, well up on the beach. And I set up camp, probably had Dinty Moore beef stew for dinner. And then I woke up at 3 in the morning to the feeling of the tide coming in the tent. So in New Jersey, we have like, you know, 18-inch tides, right? In, uh, in, on the anchor, they have like 10-foot tides. And so the problem was not that my bag and tent were wet. The real problem was that the rabbit... The VW Rabbit was parked in front of the tent. Oh no! Oh yeah! Underwater. Yeah. So I not under completely, but uh, you know, four cans of gum out later, I got it started and and had help getting it towed off the beach. So I never actually went fishing on the anchor that day because I started walking up the anchor at like four in the afternoon, and immediately I began to notice these giant, I mean, really big carcasses of fish that were dead and dying and they had these big you know hump backs and these hook jaws and some of them were sloughing flesh off that uh they were like zombie fish and this is the this is a true story i thought that a train had gone off a trestle up river not knowing that there are no trestles crossing the anchor river in alaska and uh, and somehow uh dumped acid or something and killed all these fish so I walked up river and I never stepped foot in the Anchor River. To this day, I have never stepped foot in the Anchor River because I didn't want whatever I'm was killing out. these fish on my sweet new rubber waders. I saw a guy standing in a pool casting and, you know, I just watched him. And, you know, that feeling when you're, you feel like you're being watched and, you know, he kind of looked at me a couple times and then eventually he turned around and he says, what? And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm fishing. And I said, aren't you worried about whatever's killing all these fish getting on you, getting on your skin? And he looked at me, and he's like, dude. Are you kidding? Who put you up to this? Dude, those are salmon. That's like part of the deal. And I was like, yeah, right. So I literally never stepped foot in the river. I went back in Mick's car, which is now cleaner than it had been since it was new, drove to the Anchorage Public Library, got a couple books out on, on uh, the life history of salmon, read them by firelight uh, that night, and decided, you know, this is cool, right? These fish that can travel a thousand miles, like up the 
you know, the, where they, you know, and, and they return to their natal stream. They stop feeding as soon as they enter the salt or the fresh water. They drop their scales, and they return to the very stream they were born in, where they have sex one time before they die. And then their bodies provide the nutrients that allow that whole thing to continue. It's I was like, I was like, man, that's it. That's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going to save the salmon. That's my deal. And that's how I got into conservation. How about that? Yeah, yeah. I said I have that feeling every day when I go to work at TU, and 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 that's a feeling I share in common with two hundred and twenty other employees. Um, you know, we we all do this work because we have a, a most of us anyway. Some may have grown up with conservation in their background. Their parents maybe were fishermen, or uh, you know, and it just was a part of their life for a long time, but. Many of us have these sort of individual moments of clarity that that have really put us on the path that we're on. And and all of us, I think, and this is true of our volunteers as well, I think we all really believe that we can take specific actions today to make the world a better place. More so now than ever. Yeah, amen. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Uh, So let's talk about TU. Um, For those that might not be members that should be, you don't just have to be a trout angler. That's right. Member of TU. Yeah. It's a conservation organization. How and where did it start? So it started on the banks of the Asable River in Michigan. There were a group of anglers there, about 13 of them, who um, were frustrated because, you know, this is back in, this is like 57 years ago, so it's, you know, we're at the height of, you know, the go-go industrial development era. And uh, these anglers were frustrated because the state of Michigan was basically masking habitat degradation um, you know, the pollution of these rivers by pumping out ever more hatchery fish. And so they were catching these, you know, 13, 12, 13 inch cookie cutter hatchery fish that are reared in concrete tanks. They basically said, this is ridiculous. If we, if we take care of the fish, the fishing will take care of itself. And right now we're not taking care of the fish. So they created this group, Trout Unlimited, to basically get the state of Michigan to, uh, Acknowledge that we needed to do more to protect and recover these rivers and, and uh, you know, de-emphasize the use of hatcheries. It doesn't mean we're anti-hatchery by, by no means, but um, I think our strong preference as an organization is that uh, we create healthy water quality, healthy habitat conditions, which will then create um, conditions such that wild and native fish can persist without help. And that's, that's basically what we've been doing for 59 years now. That's the, the mission. Is that sort of the elevator speech you'd give somebody if you stepped in and they said, what, what is it you do? Yeah, we, what we do, the, the simple statement is that, um, you know, we make fishing better, right? By, so our mission is to protect and restore trout and salmon and the habitats they depend on. And by doing that, you're going to make fishing better, right? I mean, and so that goes without saying that, that we make fishing better, but, and that's the elevator speech, right? That's the, the venal way that we appeal to anglers. You know, you should join TU because there is no other organization that does as much anywhere in the world on a day-to-day basis to make fishing better. That's just true. But that's really the least important thing we do because what we really do is that the complexity of the projects that we're involved in, the, the, the network of relationships that we develop throughout hundreds of local communities all around the country 
are incredibly powerful. I mean, we are literally building community every place we work. Um, you know, creating friendships, bringing former adversaries together, getting people to focus on, you know, the, the common interest that we all have in protecting the health of, you know, the land and the water that sustains us. Everybody needs water. Everybody needs water. And we all depend on healthy lands, whether we know it or not. And so that's what we do. So, um, you know, even if you're a bass fisherman or, or like me, you're completely ecumenical about your fishing, as you know, Rob, since we went out for snakehead a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, I, I love to fish for anything. It, where we really start is up in the headwaters, high, you know, in the, in the mountains where these springs, these rivers begin as springs. And we try to extend, we try to protect those areas and then restore, reconnect and restore uh, the areas downstream from there. And that has significant benefits for, um, you know, the Potomac River, you know, the, the water that's flowing through uh, the nation's capital right here begins as trout streams in West Virginia. And, stone. Yeah, and we're very active in all those places. Fantastic. When did it go from sort of being grassroots Michigan to we're going to have a, a field office in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, that's a great question. So it was, it was a total, um, it was like a grass fire. So, you know, the anglers in New York heard about this group in Michigan that created this organization. And then the anglers in, you know, Pennsylvania heard about the anglers in New York and, and Michigan. And, and, it, and then we had a man who just passed away at 100 years old uh, last year, the last founding father of TU. His name is Art Newman. And I had the pleasure of seeing him um, a few months before he passed in Michigan. And, I, of course, I, I, I had met him before, but, you know, I'll just tell you a quick interlude. So he's 100 years old. He's living in a home very lucid, a really, uh, you know, an amazing man who had lived an amazing life. He, he had a, a rod company called the Wag- Wanagus Rod Company, which is Saginaw, spelled backward. And people used to come and visit him and pick up flies and, and buy rods and stuff before they would go fish, you know, some of these fabled rivers like the Asable. Anyway, so we had this great conversation. He was failing in health. He didn't have much time. We knew it. And we talked for about an hour. And then on the way out, as I stand up to leave, he grabs me by the leg and he says, what are you going to do to protect Trout Boy? <laughs> um, so anyway, the, the, you know, it was, you know, literally Art Newman was the Pied Piper of conservation. He was hired as the, the organization's second executive director, and he traveled all around the country by car and by airplane, basically preaching the gospel of TU and creating chapters everywhere he went. And, you know, today... The Johnny Appleseed of TU. He was the John, that's a great way to put it. He was the Johnny Appleseed of TU. And today we have over 400 chapters, all volunteers, they donated this year over 700,000 hours of community service to the places they live, doing things like uh, helping veterans to heal uh, through time on the water or teaching kids to fish or doing stream cleanup or stream improvement projects. And then we also have a professional staff. We balance out that tremendous passion and energy of our grassroots with a professional staff of 230 people who are spread you know, all over the country where the trout are. Um, including, you know, 25 or so that are back here in Arlington. Um, we have a fairly small headquarters office because, you know, we believe strongly in putting our people where the, where the trout are. Hey, you used to be at 1500 Wilson. That's right. My wife's, you were on the same floor as my wife back in the day. Is that right? Yeah, when she was at the uh, satellite office for the Pentagon. I'll be darned. I wonder if I'm sure we passed each other yeah, in the hallway. she would stop in for stickers. But I'd go pick her up for happy hour and there'd be just, Someone sitting on the steps with a, a rod tube, just getting ready to go yeah, out. Yeah, we, we have a lot of anglers who love yeah. to fish in the office here. In fact, I don't know, did I tell you about our tournament that we have? 
Uh, we spoke about it before. The, the, the uh, we call Aces. it the Potomac River Wild Fish Challenge. So basically, the you know we have a bunch of people who love to fish in the office, and the first person starting January one to catch ten you know named species on a fly, uh, including American shad, hickory shad, smallmouth, largemouth, uh, gar, crappie, uh, catfish, carp, and snakehead. Uh, wins the PRC, the, the Potomac River Challenge. And you get your name on this giant trophy that we have and you get a little trophy on your desk and you get nice. to brag for, for the whole rest year. of the year. Yeah, That's yeah. awesome. It's 9 to 9 right now. I'm tied with a guy named Keith Curley who honestly I think abused his paternity leave so that he could fish. So there, And he got to 9 before I did. So unless I get a snakehead he will uh, take the tournament this year. But there, there will be a meeting of the rules committee uh, about this fishing during paternity leave. It just doesn't seem right no, to me. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Anyway, this will be looked at by the Rules Committee. Absolutely. We'll have some of the listeners chime in, too. Uh, so where are some of these locations that the non-D.C. residential people live? Uh, oh, you mean the, like they're spread the other out? 200 people? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, we've got offices in North Carolina, uh, Virginia, not rural Virginia, not, not Arlington, uh, West, we have a big staff in West Virginia. Some of the most impressive work we've done is in West Virginia with like the Monongahela National Forest and the Fish and Wildlife Service and NRCS, Nat- Natural Resource Co- Conservation Service. Uh, we've got offices throughout New England. We've got Mid-Atlantic offices. We've got a ton of offices out West in Utah, Colorado, uh, Oregon, Washington. I mean, we're all over the country. Now, these aren't big like offices like the one your wife was familiar with. I mean, some of these are one or two people offices. A lot of them are people working from their, you know, their kitchens or their living rooms. And again, you know, so we're, we're really unique as an organization. There's a lot of different organizations that do advocacy work that, you know, lobby on Capitol Hill or lobby their state legislature, groups like the Wilderness Society or the Sierra Club or NRDC. And then there's a lot of groups that do on the ground restoration, like, uh, Ducks Unlimited or Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, but there are no groups that do both other than us. And and so what we do is we leverage the goodwill that's created by that on-the-ground work in these local communities where our employees live and where our volunteers are. We try to leverage that uh, to influence policy at, at both the state level and the federal level. So we're constantly uh, bringing back volunteers and TU members to D.C. to go talk to their member of Congress to uh, let them know that clean water matters in small streams uh, for residents of Pennsylvania. You know, if a, if, if a member of Congress hears that from a fast-talking white guy like me, they're going to have one reaction. If they hear it from four or five constituents that we've flown in to tell them that we want to make sure that the EPA protects small streams, it makes a big difference. So you'll fly in people to speak to the representatives. We do it all the time, yeah. We, it, it's hardly a week that goes by that we don't have people in the office going up to Capitol Hill or going to meet with agency heads, you know, from TU. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a big part of what we do. It's really, you know, it's, I think what happens a lot of times is, particularly with members of Congress and with people who, you know, run these federal agencies, they, and this isn't a criticism of them, but they become disconnected with their constituents, right? I mean... You're in D.C. long enough, you know. It's a lot of elbow rubbing, a lot of black tie events. It's a puzzle palace, you know, and I mean, you know, but it's not, it's not Main Street where you grew up. You know, it's not the local diner that you used to get coffee in a, you know, a buttered roll. And so what we do is we, we try to reconnect those members of Congress with their constituents, you know, as often as we can. 
it's, it's basically a core part of who TU is and what we do. There's the on-the-ground presence, which is really important because, like I said earlier, nobody does more to make fishing better than we do. But that's really, that's just a piece of it because we then take those partnerships and those relationships that we've developed and we try to use them to influence public policy. And a lot of the senators and Congress, there are a lot of anglers there. Oh, Do yeah. they yeah. ever go back with their constituents to go to these waters and see firsthand? Oh, yeah. They're pretty busy. They head back on the weekend. Oh, yeah. No, they, 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 there's a ton of members of Congress who love to fish. I, I was up there uh, testifying on Capitol Hill on a bill. It's called the Community Reclaimers Act. And, and even though Congress over the past few years has you know, put the fun in dysfunction, by not getting anything done. It's not called a progress, it's called a Congress. That's right, that's right. But they, uh, they did pass, the House passed this bill called the Community Reclaimers Act, which I was up on Capitol Hill testifying in support of, and, and the bill would uh, essentially make it easier for organizations like TU or local communities that um, don't have any, anything to do with historic abandoned mines to go in and clean those mines up without becoming part of the chain of custody or, or becoming liable under the Clean Water Act or, or the Superfund law, which is, and because of that, that concern about liability, it's been a profound disincentive for groups like ours uh, to go in and clean up these, these abandoned mines that occur throughout Appalachia and Colorado. You just see them leaching yeah. every color of the rainbow. That's out. it. That's it. So, so anyway, I, I think there's hope on the way there. We passed this bill in, in the House. I think it's going to pass in the Senate. We're working on it. But the reason I mention this is during that, uh, during that hearing, before I testified or, or before every question that a member of Congress asked, almost every member either said they're a member of TU, which probably most of them aren't, or they, they love how much they love to fly fish. So it's, you know, fishing is a, you know this, I mean, it's your job, but you know, there's something universal about fishing and there's something, something that just connects people when you're on the water. You know, it's just, it's something everyone likes. Even people who don't fish, they, they talk about it, you know, longingly, like they wish they did. So we, you know, we try to we try to take take that shared passion for fishing that every angler has, and and help remind them gently, not in a hectoring way, but gently that you know, hey man, this happened for a reason. You know, the reason the shad run is as good on the Potomac as it is today, is because it's not treated like an open sewer anymore, like it was when my dad went to school here in the in the you know sixties, because there was a law passed called the Clean Water Act, and that made the Potomac much better. My dad's got stories about the smell. He says back in the, the 60s, on a summer day, you could stand on the steps of the Capitol and not see the Washington Monument. And the air the was that gross. Yeah. Yeah, my dad, he went to Georgetown, as I mentioned earlier, and he, uh, he said that you wouldn't ever put your, uh, you wouldn't ever go in the Potomac for fear of getting sick. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's a totally different river. And you know how good that shad run is. And the shad, it, they're all wild reproduction. There's no shad yeah. stocking here. No. I mean, there was, Jim Cummins did do a stocking program that helped to get the shad fishery back in the, like the early nineties. I remember cause I volunteered a little bit. No, that's a, that's a totally naturally reproducing population of fish. And you know, if you go out, you know, you've done this, but you go out there and you rent a boat at Fletcher's and there are days when I have had hundred, 200 fish days. I, I mean, tell people it's the least technical, most rewarding fly fishing you'll ever yeah, come across. Yeah. I take my kids there. I take it's their exhausting. friends there. We take, we, a couple of years ago, we, some of the guys in the office, we went down 
and we worked with one of the DC public schools. We did like three sessions, one session in the classroom where we showed some videos, another session where we taught them to tie flies. And these are inner city kids who have never been to the Potomac River, right? They grew up here their whole lives, but they've, you know, their parents are busy or they're not anglers and they haven't been out. And then we took them to Fletcher's to catch shad. And I'm telling you, man, that, that's like a life-changing experience. It's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. So what's a, what's a daily or weekly schedule like for you as your role as CEO, president? So I do a lot of traveling. Um, you know, I do a lot of traveling. I'm, I'm constantly shaking the money tree, as I, as I say. And, you know, it doesn't, um, that doesn't bother me. I know a, a lot of people find uh, asking others for money to be distasteful. But, um, you know, if I didn't have this job, when I was in high school, I wanted to be a priest until puberty set in, right? I was okay with the vow of poverty. And right. I was okay with it. In fact, I wanted the vow of service. But the vow of chastity became a little bit too much. But if I, you know, if this is the, the next best job to, to being a priest. I mean, we, we literally help people on a daily basis. We make the world a better place every day. And I don't have a problem asking people to support that, you know? You know, the $35 that you'd spend to become a TU member, most people spend in D.C. anyway on coffee at Starbucks. Yeah. So That's two That's yeah, two drinks at happy hour here, right? if you're lucky. If you're lucky, yeah. So it's, you know, uh, so I spend a lot of time uh, traveling and, and raising money. I spend a lot of time, you know, proselytizing, talking about TU. I spend a fair amount of time up on Capitol Hill and with, you know, a lot of the agencies that we work with. So, you know, the, for, the U.S. Forest Service is hugely important to us because that's where all the native fish are, are on those green lands that they, they manage for us. And then the Bureau of Land Management is very important because they have a lot of important trout and salmon fisheries. Obviously, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Natural Resource Conservation Service who work with private landowners are also hugely important. So we spend a lot of time working those relationships with those agencies. We're sort of a different kind of organization. We are a decidedly, we're not only uh, bipartisan, we're completely apolitical. So we work Republicans and we work Democrats alike. You know, our, our motto is we don't care what your politics are. If you care about, you know, trout and salmon conservation, we're going to work with you. I mean, we work with industry for that reason. Other people that are just like, whatever, I don't care about salmon. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that will draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C. O-V-A-S dot com and don't go gently, y'all. Uh, yeah, there are. I mean, there are. It's, it's never that, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's never like, um, nobody would ever say I don't care about salmon, but what they would say is that I, I don't think that we should, if we had to choose between farmers and irrigators in eastern Washington or salmon, we're going to go with the farmers and the irrigators. And that's, and, you know, I, I truly believe on almost every one of these issues 
when people present you with that sort of you know zero sum game choice, it's a false choice. It's a it's a canard. It's a it's a politician's lie, because there are ways to take care of those to, to make sure that those farmers in Eastern Washington can get their wheat to market and still take out those four Snake River dams, which are extirpating our stocks of salmon and steelhead in Idaho. But 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 it's it's the easy route for for elected leaders often to go is to say no, I'm going to side with my people over the fish. What real leadership is about is figuring out how do you bring these interests together because salmon and steelhead are iconic symbols of the Pacific Northwest. I mean, they quite literally connect the Pacific Ocean to the sawtooths, right? And there is a way to bring those fish back and to make sure that we maintain the socioeconomic viability of the people who have become dependent on these dams that we constructed over the past 40 years. But what's missing is the leadership and the willingness of our elected leaders to, to create that forum, to bring people together. Does it hurt that they're kind of intangible, you can't pick up a fuzzy... Like, there's animals you can go yeah. watch and see them, they're cute, they're stuffed animals, but you don't really see... Char- yeah, they call, them, they call those uh, charismatic megafauna, okay. right? So, like, some, like, you know, lions or elephants or, you know... It's probably a lot easier to raise money for imperiled black rhinos. Because, Cecil the lion. Yeah, you know, because you can. You're right. They're, you, they're, you can, you know, have little teddy bears that look like them, or you know, they're they're they call them charismatic megafauna. Trout and salmon aren't like that, right? They smell when you pick them up. They're they're slimy, you know, and that's why we really try to focus on anglers. But you know, because there is this community of people who do understand that. Um, yeah, they may not be as you know charismatic as a you know, a lion or a leopard or a tiger, but there are fewer things that are more fun than, you know, a trout or a salmon at the end of your line. The, eco, the amount of money you can make on ecotourism, yeah. which is renewable versus yep, that's right. other things. Well, that's it. I mean, even we, we, one of the things that we try to emphasize, you know, a lot of times uh, politicians will bring these sort of uh, economic arguments to bear when it comes to natural resources. Like, this mine, here, they want to build a mine, for example, in, in Bristol Bay, Alaska. So this is, uh, just a quick interlude here. So in southwest Alaska, there's this place called Bristol Bay. Seven rivers drain into Bristol Bay. In two of them, uh, they want to build a massive gold, silver, and copper mine in the headwaters of these two rivers, the Quijack and the Nushagak. And every year, the Quijack provides half of the world's wild sockeye salmon. One river, half of the wild sockeye salmon from this river. It's crazy. And the Nushagak every year is in the top two producers, top two or three producers of Chinook or King salmon as they call them. Those are incredibly economically valuable fisheries. Every year those fisheries provide $1.4 billion in economic output. They support over 17,000 jobs. This is from a region that's about the size of Ohio and has 5,000 people living in it. And they'd have to completely industrialize that region in order to build this mine. And, um, and, and that's one of the things that we do, is we bring economics to the table to, to make the argument that no, actually, by managing this fishery the way that the state manages it and God made it, you will have this economic production in perpetuity versus ruining this landscape for a mine that will play out in 20 years, and then we will be forced to perpetually treat the waste from that mine forever. It's like creating another Chernobyl. 
on purpose. Yeah, it's, it's insane. It's lunacy. It's in fact, it's not insane, and we can't say things like it's insane or it's lunacy because it implies that it's not rational, and it is rational. It's just greedy. It's just people who are motivated by short-term interests and by greed. And, uh, you know, our job is to stop those things from happening. All right. So that's one of the current issues I want to talk about and dams. What about some of the past success stories? So when I got into TU in high school, acid rain was the big thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Acid rain, and then it went into whirling disease Yep. when I was in college, and then dams. I still remember the Kennebec River dam yeah, came down. Yeah, came down, yeah. So, um, yeah, those are, I mean, those are all big victories. The, the ass, I mean, you know, as a Virginia angler, you know, we've made big progress on acid rain in large part due to amendments to the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act that uh, we were involved with in the early 90s uh, before my time. On dams, we've been one of the primary advocates for taking out unneeded or obsolete dams around the country. The, uh, the Kennebec Dam is a great example. The recovery uh, of that fishery since that dam was taken out has been nothing short of remarkable. Uh, more recently, we were involved in taking out two dams on the Penobscot and then bypassing a third around the town of Howland. You know, that's that's probably our last best hope for recovering Atlantic salmon in the U.S. is is on the uh, uh, Penobscot. And we just took those two dams out and bypassed that third dam, opening up 1,100 miles to not just uh, not just uh, salmon, herring, shad, alewives, stripers, you know, and, and, and the returns that we're seeing of fish passing these old dams now where they basically couldn't get past before. The, the numbers are staggering. They're absolutely staggering. By 2020, we have designs to take out four dams on the Klamath moving all the way across the country. These were dams that were constructed 100 years ago. And, um, uh, you know, the, the recent history was that in, in 2001, the, the government shut the water off to these irrigators that had come to depend on these dams. And, and in order to protect it, it was actually a sucker, an endangered sucker fish, and created a ton of social and economic dislocation for those communities that were dependent on the dams. And then uh, the, there was an election. In the next year, the, the government said, well, okay, we did that one year. Now we're going to do the other thing. And they shut the river off for the fish. Basically, there was, they didn't allow enough water in the river for fish to survive so that irrigators could irrigate. And we lost more than 30,000 fish, 30,000 imperiled salmon and steelhead that year died because of low flows and disease. That's when we entered the equation. And we work with a consortium of state and federal agencies, other nonprofits, uh, tribal interests, local communities, ranchers, irrigators, and struck a deal to take out these four dams by 2020 and uh, thereby opening up, you know, 575 miles of habitat that's been lost for 100 years. So these stories are happening all over the country. Those are a couple of really high-profile ones. Another big one was on the Elwha. Mm -hmm. We took out the Elwha two, three years ago, and we're seeing natural recolonization of salmon and steelhead back up into there. But these kind of things are happening in local communities across the country. That's where, t where TU chapters are so good, you know. There's an old dam next to a restaurant. You know, it's probably called like Mill Creek Restaurant. And, and there's an impoundment behind the dam, but nobody has used that mill in 50, 75 years, right? And uh, we'll go in and, you know, begin a conversation with the owner and we'll tell the owner, listen, man, we'll take all the, the liability. We'll take all the risk from you. We'll assume it. We'll raise all the money to take that dam out. And you'll have a beautiful, naturally flowing river through here. You know, it'll be an, attract, an attraction for your diners. Um, it'll look better. 
Uh, frankly, there'll be less liability insurance for you in the long run because you won't have to worry about this dam breaching and uh, you know causing downstream damage. Those those deals, those projects are happening every day across the country because of the work that our chapters do. Yeah, it's really cool. What about the future? Are there things that you're going to work on besides dams? Hopefully, there's not stuff we're doing now that has to be corrected down the line. Oh, well, there, there we've all will. learned from we, our past. Oh, we've, we've learned a ton, but you know, I mean, listen, it's a basic fact. It, it costs a lot less to not screw something up than it does to try to put it together later on. You know, one of the larger, more difficult to discuss, you know, almost existential threats that we face as a country is uh, what's happening with the changing climate. And so what we've done at TU, because even in our membership, this is a contentious issue with some people, right? We have people who think, who, who truly believe in climate change, as I do, and our scientists do. And then we have others who don't. My perspective is it doesn't matter what side you're on. If you believe in protecting the highest quality habitats, and then you believe in reconnecting those high quality habitats to lower elevation areas through restoration, whether you believe in doing that because that is a climate change adaptation strategy, you're basically helping to recover the natural resiliency of these rivers so that they'll persist in the face of floods and fires and drought, or you're doing it to make fishing better. It doesn't really matter. As an angler, you should support that work. And so we've built basically our entire strategy around that model of protecting, reconnecting, and restoring river systems. It, again, it doesn't matter what your politics are, whether you, whether you believe in that because it's going to make fishing better or you believe in it because we're helping society deal with the effects of a changing climate, um, you should support TU. How can listeners get involved if they are or are not members? It's easy. You can go to uh, www.tu.org, which is our website. We, <laughs> we make it very easy for you to sign up there. And the, the website's got, it's chock full of, uh, of good information. We've got a strong presence on social media and Instagram and uh, Twitter and Facebook. Um, so there's, you know, it's, we make it easy to, to, to become involved. Fantastic. Anything else that I haven't covered yet? No, man, this I, I is fun. I would to know uh, if you had a superpower... That could help you be a better angler, what would it be? Wow, a superpower. You know, I, I would like to be able to see through things to be a better angler. I'd like to be able to see through water, you know, because then when I wasn't catching the fish that I saw in front of me, I would know it's my casting and not that there aren't any fish there. I think that's what I'd like to do, see through the water. We can get those little RC boats that have a camera underneath connected to your phone you can always drive it out there that's a good idea we, we should actually do that there's a bobber with a camera on it now really yeah that would be awesome for crappie fishing you know how you use those bobbers when you set the yeah the, could you imagine if you had a, a, a camera at the bottom of the bobber and you could see the crappie down there that would be wicked Fine. anything else no I mean I still need you to get me on a snakehead but yeah. I've only got a couple months left here to do that but no this has been fun thanks Rob absolutely uh, let's see what are you going to be for Halloween um, but I, I'm, uh, I'm going to wear a blue shirt and blue pants much like you see on right now and then I'm going to tie blue rope around me all around me and I'm going to be tangled up in blue here we go yeah it's a concept <laughs> it's a concept costume you want to give a shout out to your brother at Taps T Telos and Taps yeah so one of the um one of the lesser known things, lesser known, more important things that we do as an organization is help uh, wounded veterans to heal. 
we started, TU's been, I, I often say that, you know, when it comes to helping wounded veterans, it's like that old GTE ad, you know, we don't invent the light bulb, we just make it burn brighter. TU is basically the volunteer army for any organization that tries to enlist anglers to help veterans to heal, right? People come to us and our volunteers, whether they're from Wounded Warrior Program or uh, Project Healing Waters or Sun Valley Adaptive Sports or Wounded Warriors Quiet Waters, they all come to TU for uh, for our volunteers. And so we decided largely through uh, my brother's uh, support to uh, create a program called the Veteran Service Partnership. And, and that was largely made possible because of the support of uh, my two brothers, John and Emmett Wood, and their company, Telos, which is a Northern Virginia cyber company out here. They just felt very, they wanted to give something back to the community. They don't have any mission interest in Trout Unlimited. Cybersecurity is not something that we dabble in. Um, but they... You get spy fish, little cameras on them, <laughs> swim off the places. Judas fish to come back and tell us where the other fish are. That would, That's an idea. But they, they then, uh, we, we then were able to get other local support from a group called CACI to uh, enlist this year over 240 of our 400 chapters had uh, programs to go out and help wounded veterans um, to heal through time on the water or fly tying. And what's cool about our, our work with these veterans and these programs like TAPS, uh, the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, on whose board John chairs, my older brother chairs, what, what's cool is that a lot of times organizations use fishing as sort of this one and done thing, right? You go out there, you create, you, you plan a big outing, and then you take veterans to heal, but then they still have to go back home, right? And what's neat about TU is we, we provide a permanent community for those folks because our chapters get together, you know, once a month, and we make sure that that veteran who uh, was taken fishing or, or who was taught to tie flies, he's invited. We actually assign them a, a chapter person who, who you know, calls them up and says, hey man, come to the meeting with me or let's go fishing again next week. And it, it works really well. We had a, it was like a 40% increase in uh, activities that our chapters did this year associated with working with, with wounded veterans. It's a, it's a really cool program. And it's, it's only made possible because of the support of play, companies like CACI and Telos. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to do a follow-up at some point. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Get you back to the office. All right. Need good work. Got work to do. All right. Thanks, man. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. Jean-Paul Bourgeois and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. 
I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.